Section twenty six of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Nater. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume two. Great Navigators of the Eighteenth Century by Jules Verne. Second part, Chapter one, Part one. French Navigators, one C is it not strange to find among new zealanders the remains of food similar to that which we are now familiar on the scandinavian coasts is not man everywhere the same and incited by the same needs to the same actions finding it waste of time to seek for water and wood with which to remast the castrier and repair the mascarillon which leaked a good deal marion started on the tenth of march for new zealand and reached that island fourteen days later New Zealand, discovered by Tasman in 1642, and visited by Cook and Surville in 1772, was now becoming known. The two vessels made for land at Mount Egmont, but the shore was so steep at that point that Marion put back to sea, and returned to reconnoitre the land upon the 31st of March, in 36 degrees 30 minutes latitude. He coasted along the shore, and in spite of contrary winds returned northward, as far as the Three Kings Islands he found it impossible to land there it was therefore necessary to reach the mainland and anchor was cast opposite cape maria van diemen the most northerly extremity of new zealand the anchorage was soon perceived to be bad and after many attempts marion stopped at cook's island bay on the eleventh of may tents were erected on one of the islands where wood and water were found and the sick were installed there under a strong guard the natives came on board, some of them even slept there, and trade, facilitated by the use of a Tahitian vocabulary, was carried on in grand style. I remarked with surprise, says Crozet, that among the savages who came on board were three distinct species of men. One of these appeared to be the original native, and was of a yellowish-white color, taller than the others, the usual height being from five foot nine to five foot ten inches. He had smooth black hair the more swarthy and somewhat smaller men had slightly curling hair and lastly the genuine negro with woolly hair and of smaller stature than the others but usually broader chested the first have very little beard whilst the negroes have a great deal the curious observation was afterwards verified it is unnecessary to linger over the customs of the new zealanders or over marion's minute description of their fortified villages their arms clothing and food these details are already known to our readers the french pitched three camps on land the first for the sick upon matuaro island the second upon the mainland which served as a depot and as a means of communication with the third which was workshop of the carpenters and was some two leagues away in the midst of a wood the crew persuaded by the friendliness of the natives made long excursions into the interior and received a hearty welcome everywhere confidence was at length so fully established that in spite of crozet's representations marion ordered the sloop's boats to be disarmed this was unpardonable imprudence in a country where tasman had given the name of assassin bay to the first point on which he landed where cook had met with cannibals and had been nearly massacred on the eighth of june marion landed and was received with even greater demonstrations of friendship than usual he was proclaimed head chief of the country and the natives placed four white feathers in his hair as insignia of royalty 
Four days later he again landed with two young officers, Monsieur de Vadricourt and Leo, a volunteer and captain of arms, and a few sailors, seventeen persons in all. Evening approached, but no one came back to the ship. At first no anxiety was felt, for the hospitable customs of the natives were well known. It was supposed that Marion had slept on shore, to be ready to visit the workshops in the morning. On the 13th of June the Castrier sent her boat for the daily supply of wood and water. At nine o'clock a man was seen swimming towards the ships. A boat was lowered to help him on board. It was one of the rowers, the only one who had escaped from the massacre of his comrades. He had received two lance thrusts in his side, and been much ill-treated. From his account it appeared that the natives had at first shown their usual friendliness. They had even carried the sailors, who feared getting wet, ashore upon their shoulders. But when the crew dispersed to pick up their cargo of wood, the natives reappeared, armed with spears, tomahawks, and clubs, and threw themselves in parties of six and seven upon each of the sailors. The survivor had been attacked by two men only, who had wounded him with two lance thrusts, and as, fortunately, he was not far from the sea, he had succeeded in reaching the shore, where he hid himself in some brushwood. From thence he had witnessed the massacre of all his companions. The savages had the bodies stripped, and commenced cutting them up, when he stole noiselessly from his concealment, and threw himself into the sea, hoping to reach the ship by swimming. Had all the sixteen men who accompanied Marion, and of whom no news was received, met a like fate? It seemed probable. In any case it was needful to take immediate precautions for the safety of the three camps. Chevalier du Clusmer at once took the command, and, thanks to his energy, the disaster did not assume worse proportions. The sloop of the Mascarin was armed and sent in search of Marion's boats and sloop, with orders to warn all the camps and carry help to the most distant, where masts and spars were being made. On the road, upon the shore, the two boats were discovered near the village of Takuri. They were surrounded by natives who had pillaged them after massacring the sailors. Without waiting to regain possession of the boats, the officer put on all speed in the hope of reaching the workshop in time. Fortunately, it had not yet been attacked by the natives. All work was immediately stopped, the utensils and weapons were collected, the guns were loaded, and such objects as could not be removed were buried beneath the ruins of the shed, which was set on fire. The retreat was accomplished among crowds of natives, crying in sinister voices, Takuri mate Marion, Takuri has killed Marion. Two leagues were traversed in this manner, during which no aggression was attempted against the sixty men who composed the detachment. Upon their arrival at the sloop, the natives approached them. Crozet first sent all the sailors who carried loads on board. Then, tracing a line on the ground, he made it understood that the first native who passed it would immediately be fired upon. An order was then given to the natives to seat themselves, and it must have been an imposing spectacle to see thousands obeying unresistingly, in spite of their desire to seize the prey which was escaping before their eyes. Crozet embarked last, and no sooner had he set foot in the sloop than the war-cry was uttered, whilst javelins and stones were thrown from every direction. Hostilities had succeeded threats, and the savages rushed into the water the better to aim at their foes. Crozet found himself obliged to prove to these wretches the superiority of his weapons, and gave orders to fire. The New Zealanders, seeing their comrades fall wounded or dead without their appearing to have been touched, were quite amazed. 
they would all have been killed had not Crozet stopped the firing the sick were taken on board without accident and the encampment reinforced and put on guard was not molested next day the natives who had an important village upon matuaro island endeavoured to prevent the sailors from fetching the water and wood they needed the latter then marched against them bayonet in hand and followed them up to their village where they shut themselves in the voice of the chief inciting them to battle was heard firing was commenced as soon as the village was within range and that was so well directed that the chiefs were the first victims as soon as they fell the natives fled some fifty were killed the rest were driven into the sea and the village was burned it was useless to dream of bringing to the shore the five masts made with great difficulty from the cedars which had been cut down and the carpenters were obliged to repair the mast with pieces of wood collected on the ships the provisioning of the ships with the seven hundred barrels of water and seventy loads of wood necessary for the voyage would infallibly occupy at least a month for there remained only one sloop the fate of marion and the men who had accompanied him was still unknown a well-armed detachment therefore started for the village of takuri it was abandoned only men too old to follow the flight of their companions remained and were seated in the doors of their huts an effort was made to take them one of them without any apparent effort at once struck a soldier with a javelin he held in his hand he was killed but no injury was inflicted upon the others who were left in the village all the houses were thoroughly searched in takuri's kitchen a man's skull was found which had been cooked some days before some fleshy parts still remained which bore the impress of the cannibal's teeth on a wooden spit a piece of human thighs three parts eaten was found in another house a shirt was recognized as having belonged to the unfortunate marion the collar was soaked in blood and two or three holes were found in the side also blood-stained in various other houses portions of the clothes and the pistols belonging to young vadricourt who had accompanied the captain were brought to light the boat's arms and quantities of scraps of the unfortunate sailor's clothing were also discovered doubt was unfortunately no longer possible an account of the death of the victims was drawn up and chevalier du clusmer searched marion's papers to discover his projects and the plans for the prosecution of the voyage he found only the instructions given by the governor of mauritius a council was held with the ship's officers and bearing in mind the lamentable condition of the vessels it was decided to abandon the search for new lands and to make for amsterdam or rotterdam island then for the mariana and philippines where there was a chance of disposing of the cargo before returning to mauritius on the fourteenth of july duclusmer left treason port as he named the bay of these islands and the vessels steered towards amsterdam and rotterdam islands to the north of which they passed on the sixth of august navigation was aided by splendid weather a fortunate circumstance as scurvy had made such ravages among the sailors that very few of them were in a condition to work at length on the twentieth of september guaham island the largest of the mariana group was discovered it was impossible to cast anchor until seven days later the account published by crozet contains very precise and circumstantial details regarding the island with its productions and inhabitants we will only transcribe from it one phrase as explicit as it is short guaham island he says appeared to us a terrestrial paradise the air was excellent the water good the vegetables and fruits were perfect the herds of cattle goats and pigs innumerable 
every species of fowl abounded amongst the vegetable productions crozet mentions rima the fruit of which is good to eat when it has attained its full growth and is still green in this condition he says the natives gather for food they remove the rough skin and cut it in slices like bread when they wish to preserve it they cut it in round pieces and dry it in the sun or in oven in the form of very small cakes this natural biscuit preserves its bread-like qualities for several years and far longer than our best ship's biscuits from portagana crozet reached the philippine islands and anchored off cavite in manila bay this was the spot where the castrier and mascarin parted to go back to mauritius separately some years previously a gallant officer of the royal navy chevalier jacques raymond de geron de grenier who was one of that group of distinguished men the chazelles the bordas the floriens the dumarts de gompi the chaberts de verdens de la Crens, who contributed so zealously to the progress of navigation and geography had employed his leisure during a stay in the isle of france in exploring the adjacent seas he had made a very profitable cruise in the corvette de heure de berger during which he rectified the position of st brandon's rock and of the saya de malia sandbank examined separately saint michel roque pier and agalega in the seychelles archipelago and corrected the charts of adu and diego garcia islands convinced of the connection of the currents with the monsoon which he had thoroughly studied he proposed a shortened route always open from the isle of france to the indies it would be a saving of eight hundred leagues and was well worth serious consideration the minister of marine who had seen grenier's proposition well received by the naval academy decided to entrust its examination to the ship's officer who was accustomed to work of the kind he selected yves joseph de kerguelen during two expeditions undertaken in seventeen sixty seven and seventeen sixty eight for the encouragement and protection of the cod fisheries on the coast of iceland the navigator had surveyed a great number of ports and roadsteads collected astronomical observations rectified the map of iceland and accumulated a mass of particulars concerning this little-known country it was he indeed who gave the earliest authentic account of geysers those springs of warm water which occasionally reach to such great heights and he also supplied curious details of the existence of fossil wood which proved that at an early geological period iceland now entirely devoid of trees possessed enormous forests kerguelen had at some time published novel details of the manners and customs of the inhabitants the women he said have dresses jackets and aprons made of a cloth called vadmal which is made in iceland they wear an ample robe above their jackets rather like that of the jesuits but not so long as the petticoats which they allow to be seen these robes are of different color but generally black they are called hempe they are trimmed with velvet or some other ornament the head-dresses look like pyramids or sugar-loaves two or three feet high the women ornament the head with a large handkerchief of very coarse cloth which stands upright and cover it with another finer one which forms the shape of which i spoke lastly kerguelen had collected very interesting documents relating to denmark the laplanders the samoyeds the faroe islands the orkney and shetland islands which he had thoroughly explored kerguelen entrusted with the examination of the route proposed by grenier asked permission of the minister to employ his ship to explore all the southern lands discovered in seventeen thirty nine by bouvet de Lozier 
the abbe Terray, who had just succeeded the duke of praslin gave him command of the ship le Berrier, which brought three hundred able-bodied seamen and provisions for fourteen months from lorient together with some ammunition for mauritius the abbe rochon was associated with Kerguelen for making astronomical observations upon reaching mauritius on the twentieth of august seventeen seventy one Kerguelen exchanged the berrier for the la fortune to which a small vessel the gros ventre with sixteen guns and a crew of a hundred men was attached under command of monsieur de saint aluarne as soon as the two vessels were equipped Kerguelen set sail and steered northward in search of the mahe islands during a great storm the sounding lines of the fortune gave an ever-decreasing depth first thirty then twenty and at last only fourteen fathoms anchor was then cast and it held fast throughout the tempest daybreak at least relieved our anxieties says Kerguelen. we perceived neither land nor rock the gros ventre was three leagues distant her captain could not believe that i was at anchor for the noise of the thunder and dazzling lightning prevented his hearing or seeing my signals this is the sole instance of a vessel anchoring in the night in the open sea upon an unknown coast i set sail and allowed the vessels to drift taking constant soundings i at first found fourteen then twenty then twenty-five at last twenty-eight fathoms then i suddenly lost the bottom altogether proving that we had passed above a submarine mountain this new bank which i called fortune bank stretched northwest and southeast it is situated in seven degrees sixteen minutes southern latitude and fifty five degrees fifty minutes eastern longitude the fortune and the gros ventre then made for fifty degrees southern latitude which was the route recommended by the chevalier de granier the two captains were aware that the winds constantly blew from the east at this season of the year and therefore went to the maldives and coasted along ceylon from point de galais to tricomalais upon their return the monsoon had changed the prevailing winds were west and southwest as grenier had predicted the routes suggested by him had undeniable advantages and these have been so amply confirmed by experience that no other is now followed End of section 26